Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by two very special guests, my co-founder at Village, Anne Duane, uh, and Mercedes Bent, partner at Lightspeed. Uh, Mercedes, Anne, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. So, uh, Anne, I, I brought you on to co-host because of your deep uh, ed tech background, uh, having started Cinch, uh, and it sold to, to Chegg, where you were chief business officer, and then you were a, uh, a venture capitalist in the ed tech space at, at GSV before, before helping start Village w- with myself and Ben. Uh, and, and Mercedes, you've also worked quite a bit in ed tech um, at General Assembly beforehand and are now focusing on it, uh, among other things, at, at Lightspeed. Um, Mercedes, by way of introduction, uh, I want to get into a number of your posts today, but w- why don't you talk about your background in terms of how you became so passionate uh, about, about this topic um, and, and why you wanted to focus on it? I, you know, it's, it's, it's a great question. I think it, I first, there's the personal side and the business side. On the personal side, I have come from a family of educators for a long time. My grandparents were professors at HBCUs in Virginia, and my mom was also a professor at a community college. And so my family always had this thought that education is the great equalizer. And they were like, this is how we're going to get ahead as a family. And it's so important to invest in it. And so that was always kind of in my in my head. And then on the professional side, you know, I started working at General Assembly in 2012. I wasn't intending to, you know, go into ed tech at that time. I actually was working at Goldman. I was trying to get a job in product management. Nobody wanted to hire me coming from financial analysts doing trading to be a product manager. Looking back on it, I guess I kind of see why. But, you know, I I was said, okay, fine. I can't get this job I'm looking for. I remember I was like interviewing at like Square and PayPal. And I was like, let me, um, you know, go to GA. And as an employee, I will also get to take their classes for free. And then I'll, you know, go and leave and join a real tech company like a year later. Um, and of course, five years later, I was still there. So, you know, I kind of fell in love with the mission and how they were changing and transforming lives. And I've, I've been in the space ever since I've been there. Um, yeah, I, I've done, I worked at another startup that was also focused on ed tech and virtual reality. I did a master's in education and for the last few years, I've been investing in the field. Talk a little bit about General Assembly, right? Because it, it, it's it's such an interesting company in that it, it explored different different avenues at different times, and and it was very ahead of its time in a number of different ways. There are lots of companies that are you know coming out now that are sort of doing things that General Assembly pioneered in some ways. Talk a little bit about what the ed tech space has has learned from General Assembly. You know, it's funny because I, I, especially with the Coursera IPO of recently, you know, there was like a number of companies that emerged in that 2010 to 2012, 2013 era. And actually broadly, if you look at tech, there were a lot of really interesting companies that came from, from that time frame. But I think that same is true in the learning space and the ed tech, specifically career mobility. There were these, the boot camps, and then there were the, you know, MOOCs, the massive online open courses. And of course, you know, where Anne's worked in the past, Chegg, those companies had been around even before that. And I think that so tutoring companies were another large set that also got pretty big in, in the last decade. I think the last decade was really focused on 
skills training and development from an adult education career mobility perspective. And it was very focused on 21st century skills, tech skills, and that we see it, the evolution of that. A lot of them improved their models, you know, the in-person boot camps went online and the MOOCs, which, you know, were originally kind of more university classes have done a lot more innovation partnering with corporations and having better, you know, kind of skills focus. That's a little bit more corporate. But I think that what that's kind of led to now is like we have a whole new decade of education companies ahead of us. I'm not sure exactly what the new categories are going to be called yet, but I feel like I'm starting to see them. I'm seeing a lot of these, you know, more Gen Z focused learning companies that really take community and social and kind of like this authentic understanding of not just what are the skills I need to learn, but what does the whole company I want to work at have to kind of provide me? And and they're really thinking about it in a different way. So right now I just kind of call them like, I don't know, the 2020s or the the, the Gen Z kind of, uh, I hate to say Gen Z because they're not all focused at Gen Z, but kind of more of this social community driven education, career, career skills, landscape. So I'm excited to see where those go. Yeah. I, I, I want to get into, to, into that as well as some of the other um, sort of subspaces within ed tech. And, and, and before doing so, um, can you sort of lay out a little bit of a, of a, of a map in terms of when we're talking about ed tech, what, what are we exactly talking about? What are sort of the subsectors or so, how do you break up? Uh, how do you break up the world? Yeah. And, you know, I use ed tech in the broadest sense of the world word possible. I'm talking about everything from pre-K to gray. I'm talking about consumer enterprise. You know, I'm not talking about just K-12 school sales, which is, I think, in a weird way, when people hear ed tech, they think they think that's what it is. But to me, it's just the fastest way to say everything that involves learning technology. And so education technology, I, I've almost started to say, think I should call it learning tech, like learn tech instead of ed tech, because then maybe that'll help people's minds flip a little bit more to it's everything. But starting at pre-K to gray, that's, you know, early childhood education, then thinking about K-12. And K-12 isn't such a massive time frame. Really, you have to break it down into kind of like K through four, five through eight, nine through 12. And then there's university or post-secondary education. And then there's career skills. There's kind of like early career. And then there's kind of ongoing lifelong learning skills. And it's not just skills. It's also passions and hobbies. And you think about it all the way to, okay, you know, what's a career arc. I start with discovery. I then go into kind of learning. Then I actually try and get hired. Then I perform on the job and then I transition off of the job. So when everything career skills onward, there's also all of these smaller microcosms of career learning stages as well and companies that are serving, you know, every touch point of that journey. So like a guild education is doing a bunch of different steps, but with their new outplacement, um, you know, product, they're working on the transferring and the transitioning from one career to another. And then um, you have, you know, companies like interviewing tools that are more in kind of the, just the hiring space. So there's a really a wide breadth of things that I consider ed tech. Um, and even some of it is probably a little bit more accurately like HR tech. So, so ed tech is hot now for the last, finally. yeah. Right. So for the last decade or so or something, it, it hasn't been, 
and people have been dubious for a number of different reasons. One, I think it's, it's hard to sell to schools. It was, you know, was, and so when you give a little bit of historical overview, like if you put, you know, if you have it in certain phases of, 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 of ed tech, what were the sort of different inflection points? Why don't you give us a little bit of the, of the history here? So, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, how, how far back do we start? So in which category? Um, so, cause I actually did this exercise a couple of months ago where I was trying to look at for each of the subsectors, like broadly for K-12, early childhood, higher education and career skills, what have been the developments over the last three decades. And so you can think about how big that matrix is, but it, it, it gets a little complex, I would say. And I'll just kind of level it up and talk about maybe two. So I'd say in the higher education space, if you go back to even that really like the 90s, the first development was just taking universities online. A lot of people speak poorly about University of Phoenix today, but they were really revolutionary. The company was started actually in the 1970s in terms of actually getting people online. And for a while, for a long time in the 90s and even up through a lot of the 2000s, people were like, this is an amazing thing. You know, they reached like hundreds of thousands of students. And I think we see models today that maybe have a little bit more better branding positioning in terms of where, how people view them today. Like SNHU is doing amazing things. But I think that was the first wave of like, just let's just get online. And then there was the perception of, okay, is online or online classes really even good? Or is that something that we can trust? And then there was to you and to you came around and said, online education is just as high quality and can deliver degrees at the same price that an in-person experience could. And that was a really revolutionary concept at the time as well. And, you know, their famous tagline, no back row of how people can be really engaged online, I think was pretty powerful in selling that. And then kind of from there, that was like 2000s going on 2010s. And then from there, I feel like they're now we're kind of caught up to more recent timeframes. The 2010s of higher education were the MOOCs, really. I mean, the disruptive idea of, you know, let's take all of your classes and let's make it accessible to everyone. So accessibility is a theme throughout all three of those. Accessibility was a theme with the University of Phoenix. It was a theme with 2U and it's a theme with the MOOCs. But at the same time, you also probably saw the cost you know, coming down for, for a lot of those. And so now, you know, Coursera just went public and you can get a fully online degree for, you know, 20,000, 22,000 on there. So I think those are, that's one in just higher education. And in terms of other things that have been big over the decades, I think in the K-12 space, thinking about the transitions through constantly, the idea has been, how do we better help our kids learn the material they're supposed to be learning. And so a lot of that falls into tutoring. And I think that tutoring a few decades ago, or even a decade ago versus tutoring today, it's really gone through a big shift of it used to be, okay, you know, the, the test prep schools and the Kumon and the math centers and the, like, you need to learn this material, practice, sit down, memorize. And the U.S. was going through a cultural shift at the same time as these companies were evolving. And so today, the tutoring world is a lot more about how do we make it fun? How do we get you engaged? How do we even tell, not tell you it's education like Prodigy, Math and Dreambox Learning and Minecraft and all these companies out school, you know, live online marketplace of kind of fun, engaging topics that are in some ways supplemental and some of them are tutoring, 
or, or sorry, skill developing, but they're really replacing or augmenting, you know, what traditional tutoring was. So I think that's another big development that a lot of times when I look at emerging markets and see their tutoring solutions, they look a lot more like our tutoring solutions, maybe, you know, 10 years ago, but I think that's rapidly changing across the whole world. That seems like a great innovation. And as you look ahead, given that we've, so many of us have been in lockdown, what does a future of learning look like? Like, have we passed a point of no return there? There'll all be be hybrid and online, or how do you think about both, you know, from K-12, but higher ed and corporate learning? Yeah. I mean, I'm really excited about the possibility of social learning and community-driven learning that really utilizes peers. So peer-to-peer learning maybe would be the more academic way to say it, but we have consistently gone through school and a lot of times you think of it as a teacher-to-student relationship and, oh, sometimes they make me do these activities with other people. And at the same time, we also know that teaching is the form of learning that is the highest retentive for the person actually doing the teaching. So I really feel like we should make every, you know, learning organization one where people are required to, as a way to prove that they really have mastered the concept to teach others. And that really is what I think the community and social driven learning companies have realized is that if you connect people through the power of community you can actually solve most of the content and instruction problems you would have had to do in a more formal model. And so when I look at companies today like Fiveable or Career Karma and seeing how they are leveraging and utilizing community forage as well in this way, you know, they're really tapping into this new model that I think we're just in the early innings of. So there's, there's a whole bunch of them. Like I actually see a lot of language learning companies get this right. And I think language learning is such a high churn segment because it's really hard to stick with learning a new, new language that they've had to get very creative, probably faster than the rest of the industry on how to make concepts stick. And so there's a lot of companies there that all, they just have been pairing people together for a super long time of, okay, you know, English, you know, Spanish, you know, Mandarin, you know, French, like talk to each other. VIP kid did this, Busu did this. And so I think, you know, this peer-to-peer learning aspect is going to be really powerful or, or social learning as I'm calling it. And, and, and social learning, you, like a company like Microverse would fit into that? Is that sort of what you have in mind? They have done a re- something really interesting where they implement it throughout almost the entire process. I think it's so interesting if you hear the founder, you know, speak about how they do it. It's not just when you're in class that you are experiencing a peer-to-peer learning experience. It's when you're in admissions. It's when, you know, you're going through, is this even something that I do and or that I join when you're going through onboarding, when you're going through job searching, it's all peer-to-peer driven. And I find that to be really, really hard to manage first off and like impressive that they've done that. Because one thing, just I was going to say, because one thing there, like one of the issues with peer-to-peer learning and trying to make it work and and trying to drive community-driven learning is that if you're very explicit about it, sometimes people can say, you know, well, like, especially if they're paying, like I'm paying to be in this learning experience and you're asking someone else to do the teaching to me. Like we're so conditioned from school to be like, where's the like 
professor or where is like the value I'm getting out of it. And you do it in a in more informal setting, like online where there's a community, you know, then you have to work really hard to structure the information in a way that's useful and doesn't trend towards, you know, negative or or not being productive content in the first place. So it's it's a really hard model to manage correctly. Yeah. And one also challenge there is not just instruction, but also uh, credentialing in the sense, you know, there was this survey where someone asked like Georgetown students if they would rather, you know, have learned nothing but get the degree from Georgetown or like learn a lot, but get no degree. And then a bunch of them chose the the degree, um, which it seems fairly obvious in, in, in some sense, just based on how valuable that that sort of uh, credential is. What do you think about the future of credentials? Well, this has been a really interesting year for the future of credentials. I, I would say generally I've been not very optimistic that we will move far off of traditional credentials because people have been talking about unbundling the university for decades and we haven't really successfully done it. And everyone says, well, this is going to be the year that all the colleges close and it never is. And I think just the staying power of a degree is so powerful, especially in a country like America, where we don't have, you know, any other way really to skip social class and set for maybe like just becoming really rich and, and money. And that happens to so few people. You know, education is one of the only ways to really move your life up in a predictable way. And so I, and it's because of these like, you know, systems, we don't have royalty, we don't have, you know, the caste system or different things like this that tell you where you're supposed to be. And so it's, it, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think this year was really interesting because finally, when we went on Zoom, we were all confronted with a reality I think most of us already knew, but now it's kind of in your face and you can't not see it. The veil has been lifted of, okay, I'm still paying $50,000 a year for what quality of an online Zoom class. And so this was, I mean, this has definitely been reflected in the data. It was the first year this year that tuition inflation crept to basically a halt. Tuition inflation for the past, you know, 20, 30 years has been like, ranging between two and 8% every year. It outpaces every other product we have in the country in terms of the pace of inflation. And this year it was like 0.1% growth. So basically every college went and stopped. Ooh, it's not worth it. And they froze the tuitions because they knew the value of the credential was at risk if they didn't kind of stop. And so this is like a big reckoning that I think you know, and then the SATs also became optional this year. And so those two things are two really big signals, leading indicators to me that maybe we might be slightly closer to having new credentials than we ever have been before. But a lot of people have tried to create, especially like the SAT of engineering or the SAT of digital marketing and these new skills. I think that it's really hard for especially a profit seeking organization to credibly put forward those standards and have them adopted by everybody else. And so you would have to have some, you know, authoritarian nonprofit association put them forward. And this actually works really well in a lot of the regulated and licensed industries. That's who runs those bodies. But I don't think we have the same thing in a lot of white collar jobs. And so it's, I'm I'm watching. I'm I'm looking. There's a couple of interesting companies coming up that um, were Kara and and others that are that are working on these problems. So maybe this is the year things start to change. What's that company doing? 
where Kara is doing a credential for artificial intelligence jobs. And they do have kind of, they are a for-profit company, but they were kind of started out of a nonprofit association for artificial intelligence. So they have that credibility there. Is it basically the model of what Lambda just did in terms of partnering with Amazon? Like it's your boot camps or partnering with employers to teach the skills and then guarantee a job? Is, is that? It's a credential that is separate from instruction. So it's a credential just of its own in terms of there oh. is there, there are places where you can within, I believe in their platform, there are ways, ways you can learn and they partner with companies, but they really assess skill level and then yeah. credentialize it. So more closer to like competency-based education of like, you didn't study anything, just take the test and right. tell me what you got. Yeah, I, I misspoke. I meant, is the do you see the future more of what uh, I, I described in terms of what Lambda, like it, it, to me that it seems like it solves a big problem, which is employability and also... Google might be a better Google bootcamp or university might be a better credential than, you know, most universities. Yeah. You know, the, the corporation as the credentializer is an interesting thing that I've thought a lot about. And I think in some ways, you know, because a lot of people have said, why aren't, why haven't we had, I wrote about this last year, you know, why haven't we had more like the Google university for ad engines or something or the, you know, the Facebook university for digital marketing. You could major in digital marketing at Facebook, probably a really good like place. And and why have these companies not created these universities or, you know, why is not a startup? I mean, lots of startups have tried to partner with them to build kind of something authoritative, but I don't think that they're really going to lend their brand to the level that it would actually be like the name of a university. They're happy to have it be partnerships with others institutions. And another argument someone said to me about this was, well, you know, think about like the oldest brands in the university space. They've been around for thousands of years, you know, 400, 500 years. They've been around much longer than any company has ever been around. And would consumers want their degree from an institution that's been around for like 10 years? And I don't know. I mean, we constantly are asking ourselves this all the time, but I do think there's going to be micro credentials and there's still going to be the degree. I'm, I'm not positive that they're gonna, there's going to be one or the other. I think it's going to be some combination of both. I think the university degree needs to move more towards competency-based education. You show up, you take the test, you say, I already know these things. So I can get some of that, you know, I can get that stamp. And the micro-credential is more where you study, you, you actually hone specific skills and you take it at a whole, you know, parade of providers. I actually really think the university should house all of this underneath them. They should become like the umbrella that provides the accreditation. And then there's a bunch of different startups you can, you know, pay for and, and get at and get credit for taking a bunch of these, these different courses. And they're starting to move there. What's the innovation of competency-based education? That's just the idea that there's a couple of universities that do this where rather than the Carnegie seat but hours calculation of whether or not you earn a degree, which is you were in class for this many hours and outside of class, you did this many roughly hours of work that adds up to one credit. And that number, I mean, it varies. Well, at most universities, that number is like around 14 to 20 hours of work equals one credit. And so it's actually like a butt seat time metric 
versus a competency-based degree doesn't matter how much time you spent on it. You just take the final at the end of the semester, so to speak. You just show up and take the exam and then you get assessed. That makes sense. And so any other broader thoughts before moving off of higher education in terms of like if we're having this conversation in 2026, you know, have there been any big startups that really made a dent here? Has higher education itself really changed or not really in the same way that maybe, you know, in 2016, it might not have been as different, that different than, than now? I think in the last five years, we've seen a big difference in universities' willingness to work with a lot of these providers or boundary spanners, as um, you know, some of my friends call them. Like Guild Education is essentially connecting universities and employers and serving as the party, you know, like a mar- of a marketplace that's really making sure these transactions happen. And universities are now open to that. I think that there's also the version where they're open to like Trilogy and some of the other providers who are coming and licensing their brand in order to teach what the startup could have taught, you know, on their own. And they're not only doing this with like Trilogy continuing education, they're also doing this with majors. And so there's a number of companies now starting to actually say, hey, let's plug and play your computer and your entire computer science department, or let's plug and play your entire digital marketing department. I tried working on this when I was at General Assembly more like seven years ago, and it wasn't so palatable. People didn't really love the idea. But now I'm seeing like quite a few startups, Podium and others take off, you know, doing this model. So I think in five years from now that we will see even further versions of of that. I think the two manifestations of it will be you'll go to a university and you'll end up taking most of your classes from startups that gave credit through the university. And the other version of it is you go to work, you're working at your employer and you're able to take a bunch of university classes that you earn and eventually get your degree while working at your employer. Yeah. And and we started this conversation, you talked about sort of Gen Z community, you know, sort of new category. Talk about what's happening in that category and, and what types of startups you're you're looking for there or, or, or where you see that going? In that area, I'm interested in companies that once again to this kind of like social and community driven um, experience are really thinking through how do they leverage the authenticity of a community to really share teachings and learnings. And so, and they also are just bringing a new type of product experience. When I look at companies like Fiveable, they iterated and on the kind of tutoring or SAT prep experience by making these live cram sessions. And they're kind of giving nods to, you know, the experiential event space of put everyone together, the heightened emotions, sense of presence, making people feel like, wow, we're all in here this together. We can do this together. And that's really what's driving some of the learning. So I think there's companies like that that are kind of that are doing something, something interesting. When I think of some of the other ones, like Forage is really working on, okay, I'm looking to discover what career I might be interested in. And how do I do that in a social community driven way, not just I, most of that today, I mean, when you think about how you would do it in the offline world, you would ask a bunch of people, you would call like your friends or, you know, people when you were at university, you would ask the seniors, like, what's some good jobs or industries I should be thinking about? And so how do you put that 
experience more online. And, you know, they'll, they'll tell you and the seniors will tell you like, you need to go intern here, come job shadow me here, job, do somebody, something like this. It's a kind of like try before you buy style of community driven career experience is something Forage is working on. And I think that's really, really interesting. What have we not talked about within ed tech that's in your request for startups list that you're, uh, you know, and I'll ask and the same question. I think someone really needs to, so you think, if you look at TikTok, one of the most popular forms of content on there is this career education where people are talking about self-development and how they're, you know, learning skills and what their job is like. And that all lives on a social media platform. I'm really kind of surprised someone hasn't yet taken that and, you know, made that into like a very UGC driven community career discovery platform. So that's one area I think is really interesting. Another area I'm looking at is um, the idea, and there's a couple of companies working on this, but modular online AP courses for credit. So kind of the idea of most students in the U.S. go to public school. I went to public school and at a lot of public schools, there's not that many AP courses offered. You know, you're like, you want to get ahead. You know that those are the classes that good colleges are looking at. But, you know, maybe the AP computer science isn't offered at your school. It wasn't offered at mine. And, you know, maybe you can only take two or three. But what if you could take that one class online just that specific one, pay them out, and it's actually accredited. And then you can put it on your transcript when you go to, to college. So I think that's another really big space too, because the, the college market is only getting more and more competitive. And I think that we, we just, I mean, you kind of have K-12 doing some of this, and then you have the private, you know, um, high schools, but they're more, you have to take their entire package and so I think this modular thing is something a couple of interesting companies are working on in Mill um, Crimson Academy are, are working on this. But those that's another big one that I'm looking at. And then I'm trying to think if the what's the what's the other categories I'm excited about right now? I feel like I'm constantly excited by education marketplaces. I feel like there should be a ubiquitous childcare marketplace that Every it's like the thing that everyone uses for drop-in childcare within your neighborhood when you're traveling for the weekends, for you know, for the in your neighborhood at at your work. It just feels like we should there should be that product, and a lot of people have tried to build it over time, but we've never once seen one reach the level of you know Airbnb or or something like that. So I'm constantly on the hunt for for that too. Yeah, that's cool. You, you had one of your trends that you're excited about was consumer K-12 models that address the growing parent wallet share for supplemental learning. Is this sort of within that idea or adjacent to it? This is actually separate from that. So that is like the last year we had a ton of explosion in parent spend in the United States on discretionary education spend. But that was just not something we really did as a country compared to, especially if you look at a lot of the Asian countries, Korea and China and Japan, they just had such a higher amount. It was like 20, 30% of discretionary income was spent on your child's education. And no wonder they have the largest education, the largest valued education companies in the whole world. Um, but, you know, in the U.S., it had been single digit percentages. A lot of it had been money that was spent on extracurricular activities, after school activities, not necessarily, or tutoring. Those were kind of the two bigger categories. But 
the in the past year because parents also saw for the first time what their kids were actually working, you know, doing at school all day long. They were like, oh my goodness, the black box of school has been unveiled and we we need to help. We need to su- supplement and add more things in there. And so companies like Class Dojo and OutSchool and, you know, Prodigy and Roblox, I mean, Roblox, maybe not exactly <laughs> directly educational, but they're in many ways educational. Um, you know, I think that parents were like, okay, there's value. I need to be spending money on these platforms because one, it's babysitting. It helps your kid not be on your Zoom call every single time, but also too, it is doing something positive for their, their if they're going to be on screen time anyway, like, let me get spend some money to make it good useful screen time. So that has been a big trend that I'm still waiting to see if it reverses, but it was, it was, it was very shocking. And it meant all of a sudden, all these companies who for a lot of them had been B to B or, you know, B to school um, K-12 companies before could actually turn on a parent monetization model and really make money from it in a way that previously they would have not thought of. And, and you're also excited about different geographies, right? Uh, Lada in particular. Uh, t- talk about sort of global ed-, ed tech. Yeah. So funny enough, I don't look at ed tech outside of the U.S. too much, but I do a lot of Latam fintech investing and marketplaces. I look at a good bit over there. I'd say globally, the I spend more of my time in ed tech in probably India and. Um, probably mostly India, because we have a team there that I work with quite a bit on um, different opportunities that we're looking at. And so it's been interesting to see the Indian education market evolve. I would say, you know, even just like a year or two ago, a lot of the solutions I was seeing, whereas I was talking about a little bit more direct tutoring kind of wrote, um, you know, like, this is a subject, let's study it. And I'm starting to see a movement towards more curiosity driven and you know motivational engagement driven learning products coming out of there very very early for me seeing that but i have started to see that a little bit and i mean emerging markets have the largest education markets i mean india and china good luck having a, some us company get as big in k12 um, as you know learning as as their companies can get because we're investors in baijus and you know, that was the biggest education company by market cap for a little while until um, the one in China overtook it. And and I think those models can work on really also a lower average, you know, AOV or ARPU than what we could get to work in the U.S. as well. That makes sense. And you've, you've led a number of, of, of our investments in the space. What else are you looking out for uh, in terms of your request for startups or, or, or a space that you've uh, been spending some time? Well, I think this is in Mercedes um, hit on it is these talent marketplaces are interesting and I'm fascinated by talent marketplaces that build their own supply, meaning um, there's a company called Outscale, which we backed in India, as you know, Eric, that um, they're supplying talent for the gaming industry. And um, many people want to be game developers or game growth marketers, right? But it's not exactly apparent how to get there. And so could you solve both problems? Um, And then I would say that also in the daycare space, which Mercedes also mentioned, a company like Tiny Care, also we backed, that um, is trying to increase the supply of daycare workers because without that, we're really a supply-constrained 
system. So I think those are super interesting. And then the personalization opportunity for technology education, I think, or, or, or technology to uh, improve education at all levels and continuous learning does seem like we've passed a point of no return, meaning that even if we go back to classes or corporate seminars or something, how do you can make a more personalized experience for the learner? That's super interesting. Is it fair to say that sort of in the, in, you know, a decade ago, like the biggest companies that were, you know, doing ed tech were effectively not ed tech companies. You know, it was like Wikipedia or I was not profit, but YouTube or like Quora or, you know, just sort of like sort of internet native companies. And, and now that we're not in tech and, and now we're finally getting like, you know, companies that are native to ed tech or like way more specialized. And the big ed tech companies are ed tech companies that, that people are using. For is, is that sort of fair? More like out school, you know, things like that. I feel like these companies will continue to be really big for learning. And I've actually really thought that a new startup that could be successful also is just helping synthesize and, you know, kind of make it explicit all of the learning that we do already on these platforms. We're already watching tons of documentaries on Netflix where, you know, everyone has gone down a Wikipedia rabbit hole you know, everybody is watching YouTube and learning how to do things. And so what if there was like a layer on top of that, that also connected you to a bunch of other people who were doing the same thing on all of these education platforms and allowed you to have that higher order reflection discussion, which is a lot of what drives the retention of, of, of learning and realize that like, oh, you know, I did watch three different documentaries on, you know, what, uh, I don't know, race relations were like in the South in the 1950s. Maybe I could discuss that with somebody. Um, and I feel like that's a really big opportunity is not to say necessarily those platforms will go away, but that we can extract more out of our usage on them. Yeah. I have a couple ideas that I, I personally want as a user and maybe they could be, be, be big. One is, um, you know, I asked this prominent economist, if, uh, you know, what his tutoring rate was and if he would tutor me and he said $200 an hour and, and sure. Um, and he doesn't, uh, I, th- I think he would do it for others, but for whatever reason, basically a marketplace of all of these people who are not being, you, you know, have expertise, their PhDs or whatever, they're, you know, maybe not even getting paid well. Um, and there are people who, who want to learn, but for whatever reason, the existing, you know, marketplaces don't appeal to them or don't reach out to them or, or, or whatever it is. Um, that's an idea I'm interested in. Another idea I'm interested in is like a future fit, but for either it's learning or it's like career development, or it's basically this, this, you know, digital coach that like keeps me accountable, helps me devise a plan, et cetera. And some people might use it for more, you know, career stuff or coaching stuff. Some people might use it more for like, Hey, I, I want to learn this thing on the side. Yeah. Those are a couple of ideas. I like those ideas. I feel like I've seen more companies in the second category, a digital coach that, kind of helps you a lot. Oftentimes they have to get a little bit specific on like the primary use case, which is, you know, external HR, digital use case coach for a job search, but you're right. It could be broader than that. Um, And I think that what's hard with this is just the categorization problem, like the classic task rabbit problem of when you, people have too many options of things to choose from, it's hard for them to choose. So like, how do you make it clear to them like what the initial use case is for it? Should it be, you know, economist teaching people who don't want to go get a PhD and want to level up? And could you mix that in with a little bit of like NASA scientist and, and doing this? 
Um, but I think that's a really interesting idea. I mean, I, I think there's a big opportunity for, you know, the same way that there's this influencer, micro influencer idea in a mostly the entertainment world. Could that same idea not apply to the learning world? Yeah, it's really interesting. What about K through 12? And I have two questions that are related. One is sort of, was all school ahead of its time? Um, or was, like, where are we seeing interesting uh, you know, innovation there? Or where could we? Our school, I think, was definitely at the right time. <laughs> and, you know, before the pandemic happened, I mean, it was really interesting how they started with homeschoolers as their initial, you oh, know. Sorry, I, I meant uh, alt school. Oh, um, alt school. Alt school. ALT, yeah, okay. alt school is a question, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, I think it's great time. Alt school is a little before its time. And I think it's really hard to say in any short term, medium term, even long term, that teachers are not going to be part of a early childhood learning experience in some way. I think that, you know, it may, it's different for adults. I think adult education, there's a lot of different ways we could go. But, you know, when you, the pandemic showed us that a lot of K-12 school is just daycare and socialization and kids getting to see each other and, you know, also being able to be a little bit challenged and help them move forward. I, I think we would have to move into a world where probably more from like a gaming entry point, kids are much more interactive and engaged online and then layer some education on top of that. And then maybe that's how there aren't teachers. But I think going the like traditional school route and saying no teachers was a little bit hard to start. Yeah. Anything else in K through 12 that that's exciting to you in terms of real opportunities? I should have more, but <laughs> I'm yeah. like, these are the ones that I, I feel like there's been a a lot of interesting, yeah, I feel like most of the ones we've actually chatted about, the ones I find really interesting right now. Yeah. And you, you led uh, Sora Schools uh, 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 as a part, uh, on behalf of Village Global. What, what, what's interesting uh, there? Yeah, that's an online high school, and it's really personalized. And there's project-based learning. So um, it'll be interesting, I was just reading an article the other day about how they think homeschooling is going to increase because people have had this experience over the lockdowns. And um, I'm fascinated by that because as Mercedes was talking about, how do you make learning and school not a fun vacuum, but actually peaking curiosity. So especially young kids dig in and just embrace the love of learning, especially since the half-life of anything we learn today seems to be getting shorter and shorter. Um, we're super excited about that model online personalized, project-based high school. Yeah. And, and we also backed uh, Primer, which is provide uh, infrastructure for, for more, more homeschools. So definitely believer in, in that trend. So EdTech's getting hot. So a lot of people, you know, it, it's a mission-driven field. Uh, a, a lot you know, of people are now considering building companies in this space. You, you, you have a post that chronicles sort of uh, some of the, the common journeys and, and roadblocks that people face uh, in, in different sort of subsectors within ed tech. Why don't, why don't you un unpack that a bit? Yeah, you know, I feel like I sound a little bit of a Grinch when I talk about this. Um, but having worked in the education field for, you know, almost the last decade, I think that there are some common, because I went through them, you know, common kind of 
tropes of thinking that people go through when they first are approaching a problem in the ed tech world. And I kind of separated it into K through 12 and higher education. But a lot of tech people, when they first come to education, there's always the thought of, okay, the systems don't work and we need to do away with them and demolish them. And whether they're talking about like, we need to, we don't need universities anymore. No one should go to college, you know, or, you know, on the other side of it, we don't need school anymore. Everybody, every kid will teach themselves with an iPad. And there have been companies started around both of those, you know, initial concepts. And I see the attractiveness of the idea. Um, But I often think it's also kind of, it's an idea that doesn't scale and work for hundreds of millions, billions of children around the world, let alone, you know, the tens of millions we have in, in the U.S. Um, and so I feel like on the on the K-12 side, kind of, you know, the, the idea is like you use the that um, trough of disillusionment and the, you know, peak of the hype cycle. I think I forget who made it. I think it was Gartner made that chart for like what the, any typical technology goes through in its evolution to becoming a, you know, accepted part of, of any futuristic technology goes through. VR went through this. I also lived, worked in the VR space for a while. And I think in this, you can apply that to education so easily of saying, okay, you know, the peak of that hype cycle is after you recognize the problem that the education systems don't work, you go, oh my goodness, we need the, we need to build an AI powered, you know, school with no teachers. We need adaptive plans for everyone. We're going to have everyone drop out of college. The degree is dead. And then, you know, they start working on that problem and they really quickly run into issues with it where actually there's a lot of different, you know, side educations and just privilege that even goes into that type of statement. And when realizing like, oh, wow, okay, so people may not have stable internet connection at home, they may not be able to afford, you know, not uh, life without some of the scholarship and intuition of, of going to public school or, um, you know, free and reduced lunch or, or the, you know, scholarship for college. And maybe they don't have a computer and maybe actually, their reading and writing skills are not strong enough to actually be able to, you know, do all of it. There, there's so many different, you know, points run to maybe we run into learning disabilities, which actually affect a very large percentage of, you know, the population. So maybe that doesn't work for, or maybe just their motivation and interest, like they have ADHD and they just can't focus on it for too long. So there's all these different issues people run into. And normally also they run into a market size problem where there's a lot of just traditional beliefs about the value of the degree or the value of going to school. And it's like, this is crazy. You want me to do what? And so their market size looks like it went from the entire world to like a very, very small early adopter market size very quickly. And so then this is as you're coming down into the trough of disillusionment. And then at the bottom there, you're like, oh man, okay, we need to make money as a startup. Maybe we can, you know, let's hack together what we can do. And, you know, maybe, okay, we're going to have to work with the schools, but so maybe we just enable the teachers to, to work faster and we'll build like a, you know, AI tool for, you know, the teacher, or maybe we'll, you know, have to partner with the college so we can kind of start to, you know, acquire users from the college. We'll use that as our channel. But then eventually we, in the end, basically both of these result in you end up realizing that you're selling to schools um, in, in both categories. So that was a long-winded way of saying that, but I feel like this is uh, something that gives me a lot of giggles every time I see it. I see it every day, all the time. 
and, and, and say a couple words just about, you know, when finally is VR going to, you know, matter? <laughs> and, and what would that look like? You know, your guess is as good as mine from a consumer standpoint. I think it's already doing a lot in enterprise. There's already a good amount of industries, whether it's architecture or real estate or assembly lines or auto manufacturing that are using it in really productive ways. Because you can imagine a lot of industries where something has a really long development timeline or people have to use their hands a lot. And so having some kind of head mounted display would be useful. And a lot of those are also AR, not VR. But, you know, I think that's something that is already working well. On the consumer standpoint, I mean, we really need a consumer grade product that is like, I'm hoping whatever Apple comes out with will be this, that, you know, we need like Gucci sunglasses and we need them to do AR. And they need to not look like this, you know, the Google Glass that came out, what, nine years ago. It needs to be really something people are aspirational and excited to walk out and, uh, and around with. So I think AR is much more near term in terms of being able to provide a lot of that. Um, but at the same time, VR sales have been taking off. So if you look at the latest VR sales, um, really the, the latest Oculus Go is, is, is doing really well. I think this is a good place to to, to wrap. Uh, Mercedes, it's been a, a fantastic conversation. Uh, thank you for joining uh, Anne and I. Uh, for people who want to learn more about your work, uh, you have a fantastic blog. Uh, wh- where can you uh, where can you point people? You can find me at my blog. It's mercedesbent.co, or you can find me on Twitter, social. I'm mercebent, M-E-R-C-E-V-E-N-T. Thanks so much for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.